Hello and welcome to the Full of Beans podcast, hosted by myself, Hannah Hickenbotham. Throughout these podcast episodes, we will speak to a range of individuals about their experience of eating disorders, with the aim of increasing awareness and understanding, whilst reducing stigma and isolation. Please note that the topics discussed in this podcast may be triggering for some individuals, so tread lightly, check in with yourself and reflect on these conversations. Today I'm joined by Rob Donaldson, a father who is supporting his daughter through anorexia recovery. Rob joins us today to discuss his experience and to raise awareness of eating disorders. Hello, Rob. Hi, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, I'm fine, thank you. Yes, I'm excited to talk to you. Good. Yeah, no, I'm excited to talk to you too. And I'm I'm really, really appreciative of you coming on the podcast. I've wanted to talk to a loved one for quite a while. Um, but often, you know, it's quite difficult if somebody's not put themselves out there as a loved yeah. one of someone with an eating disorder to kind of say to someone, can you ask your mum, mm. your dad, whatever? Mm-hmm. Um, so thank you so much. Um no I've got so many questions that I want to ask you. Um, okay. but I kind of wanted to kind of preface it before I start in that if any of my questions come across as though I'm kind of saying like how to put this um kind of like you know what are you doing as Mm -hmm. in like it's your responsibility that's not what I'm asking at all but it might Mm -hmm. come across that way to kind of understand what you think about it if that makes sense no problem Yeah, yeah of course okay perfect so kind of the first question I wanted to ask and I want to kind of do this podcast in a way that if someone's listening and they are a parent, it's sort of a resource for them. Mm-hmm. So I guess the first question for you is how did you kind of recognize that your daughter might have had an eating disorder? Okay, so she was first diagnosed in May 2019, officially diagnosed as suffering from anorexia. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Prior to that, there had to be some trouble with um, generalized anxiety, some school issues, school refusal. Um, and things like that. So we're already in the system in Scotland and, and CAMS, um, seeing a child psychologist for those sort of things to help us out. So for us, I guess we were, we were quite lucky that we we're already in the system. Mm. Um, but it kind of started as, you know, there'd be a lot of food getting left on the plate potentially. Um, I remember really specifically, my wife said to me one night, I'm really worried, Rob, um, you know, she's not eating properly. Um, I'm really, really worried. And I guess... Uh, always trying to be the strong one I just try to say to myself it'll be okay it'll be fine let's not worry about it it'll be fine everything will be okay um but you know it really it, it wasn't okay and um, but like I reiterate for us I guess we were lucky I've seen so many stories of people being judged um, not suitable for treatment and things like that so our, our journey began with um, outpatient treatment in the community with meal support and nurses coming out that are part of the, the CAMS team um, to help us through those initial phases, and then we had um, some family-based therapy um, sessions as well to kick things off. Um, I specifically remember being at work and having a little bit of downtime, and, and I started researching. I didn't, I mean, I also knew what, what anorexia was. Um, I probably had a stereotypical view in my head of, of what it might entail. Um, but I remember researching a simple Google search, and I came across the Beat website, and just started reading testimonies and blogs and, and it really started to hit home then about um, probably how hard this was going to be for us mm-hmm. yeah and I think it's great that you were able to find the resource on beat because I think it is fantastic and I guess it like you said 
probably parents might have a stereotypical view of eating disorders um so to be able to have a resource that explains it to you clearly I can imagine was really useful um so when when you kind of got that support for your daughter you mentioned about family therapy um and I want to ask you kind of how you found that because I, I don't know whether you know but I personally um had an eating disorder myself and we went for family therapy yeah and I think to my parents it was they just felt a lot of blame they felt a lot of this is your fault which is why we're bringing you in mm. how did you find the family therapy um you know I started committing stuff to paper so that I would remember um at the outset and some of the stuff I wrote at the start was just feeling helpless, like unable mm. to help. So I'm a police officer, been a police officer for 24 years. I'm used to dealing with other people's trauma, <laughs> helping them. But then you go into that situation and you deal with that particular trauma, maybe signpost to other agencies, uh, and you leave that family or person to deal with that trauma, hopefully with support, some support in place. But there's just nothing you could do. You know, as a dad, if you've got something wrong with your homework, I can help you. If you're getting bullied at school, we can sort that out. If there's any other issues, we can fix it. But I just couldn't fix this at all. And I didn't know how to fix it. I didn't know where to begin. And truth be told, I'm used to reading lots of information and being able to assimilate things and come to decisions. And I just couldn't do it. I got pointed in the direction of various books, couldn't read them. I just wanted somebody to fix it. Um, so, yeah, I kind of felt helpless. Um, and looking back now, the things I found traumatic at that time probably pale into insignificance as, as the illnesses are now two years down the line. So um, the family therapy helped me with some of those things that I did wrong at the start. Now, I'm not alone. Um, just eat it. Just eat it. It's not that easy, Dad. It is easy. Just pick it up and eat it. Or if that didn't work, I would try maybe a guilt trip because mum's crying Younger brother's upset. Well, look what you're doing to your mum. But all those things don't work. And the family therapy helped me with some techniques and some things to say. And um, over a bit of time, we'd started to sort of level out in the community. And I certainly learned from the family therapy, yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's really, um, I guess, hit me um, mm. listening to you because... I guess I've never really had the conversation with my mum and dad about when I was first diagnosed. So to hear you say it is, yeah, it's taken me back a little bit. So I'm sorry if I'm a bit kind of slow with the with the questions. I guess you you just mentioned sort of the family therapy helped you with things of how to support your daughter. And I mm. wondered if you'd mind sharing those if people are listening, kind of, you know, the the guilt tripping and the just get it done maybe isn't the right approach no absolutely 100 percent not the right approach and I've, you know i've made so, so many mistakes along the line and i'm happy to admit that mm -hmm. and like you say i hope there are parents and particularly dads i mean i know um men suffer from eating disorders as well but um, i'm talking about a teenage girl my daughter and sometimes father-daughter relationships can be tough at the best of times um so to other parents or other people where dad's been good cop but Unfortunately, on my occasion, dad, dad has been quite literally <laughs> bad cop, um, <laughs> probably more often than not. Um, it just taught me to have a little bit more patience, a little bit more understanding, um, using certain phrases um, and things like that, as opposed to just feeling helpless, becoming angry, becoming frustrated, which um, on, in the early days was 
was a daily occurrence, but it came from a place of, of fear, definitely, because mm-hmm. you're scared, you don't know what's happening, you don't know how to fix it, you don't know the right things to say. So I would say in the initial family therapy sessions over, over a few months certainly helped me choose my language more carefully um, and maybe introduce some techniques to, to make mealtimes a little bit better or provide some encouragement, yeah. Sure. What were those techniques that you kind of implemented? Um, I guess it's just patience. Patience and not becoming overly angry or overly upset and realising that you're not going to get through in the traditional sense that you think you might get through to a child or, or your own child as a parent. It just won't work. Um, so, yeah, it was just controlling. Um trying to be supportive, um, but it didn't always work. Um, we had a, a mantra, like, no fuel, no school, so um, mm-hmm. we still a desire to get to school. Well, unfortunately, you're not going to school unless you take on board some fuel. So those sort of thing, things would work. Um, but we'll come on to it and fast forward a few months into the early stages of the pandemic and we were within inpatient care. Mm. Yeah, I think those... Um those techniques that you said especially the patients I think Mm. you know it it's so hard but equally like you said getting angry that Mm. I guess in a in a way that's what the eating disorder wants because it wants to separate you from the people that actually love you and then it can pretend like you know Mm. oh they don't like you anymore so now you've only got me um And I know definitely I used to find it really helpful, um, kind of like distractions after meals, whether that was playing a game of cards or yeah. um, what have you, just just keeping that anger out of meal times because it just it just give, gave me an excuse to say, well, I'm not eating it now. And mm. then that anger just got even stronger. Yeah, oh, de- definitely. Um, I, you're coming from, from the other side and you can look back a little bit, but yeah, any, any little thing I did would be an excuse not to eat. You looked at me funny, so I'm not yeah. eating. Mm. Um, but I found it really difficult the way that I'm taken out against mum or, or my wife because naturally you've got a protective instinct yeah. for that for that family bubble and and it's just like a whirlwind um, and nothing can prepare you for it uh, and yeah it's want to protect the other people in the family group as well and you just I'm not, I'm not a, a major disciplinarian but bad language, things getting thrown in, aggression, mm. you know, all those sorts of things. We don't need to go into all the details, but it's very hard to um, brush that off um, at the time. So it's about trying to keep living it. And two years down the line, I don't get it right every time. Let me reassure mm. people, I'm still learning and there are days yeah. where, where I can't, just can't do it. Yeah, I think... Um... I'm I'm really pleased that you said you know you don't get it right all the time because I think often people can think I have to get this right but equally like you've said um what one thing will work one day and then so the next day I think ah I did that yesterday so I can do that today and it'll work and it won't I, I guess what just came to my mind then is kind of you said about um that anger and things that happen and you trying mm. to remain calm how do you sort of separate in your mind that when all of that's happening, that isn't your daughter? Some days you you can do that. And, mm. you know, I'm lucky that we are a, a strong partnership. And um, as my wife and I, then we can almost tag team into it. And mm. with the other person struggling or 
Let's take a deep breath and walk away. Um, but I find that the person suffering from anorexia holds a grudge if you want or can hold it against you for far longer than I ever would. For me, the argument's forgotten within a few minutes because I know exactly it's not my daughter that's speaking to me like that. Um, yeah. But like you say, anorexia wants to separate, wants to isolate, wants to blame everybody else. So um, I know in those circumstances, it's probably when your dad's the worst person in the world, you, all you need is me. Um, yeah. This is potentially the situation we were in. So, um, But like I said, I thought I, you know, I don't get it right every time and mm-hmm. I probably haven't done enough reading. Um, but just, it's just so draining that, like I say, you just want somebody to fix it. So I've been pointing in the direction of, of the way the books that people know, the Maudsley method and developing dolphins and, <laughs> and all those things. And you, you start dipping your toe into it. And yeah, some of them, some of it's helpful, but I've not even finished the book yet two years down the line because it's just so tiring. Yeah, I I can imagine that. I don't know that I I feel like the books are fantastic and some of them have really good tips and really good advice, but it's it's that real being in that situation it's so hard to put things into practice when there's so many emotions going on as well of you just like you say you just want to fix it you just want your your daughter to be better mm-hmm. I can imagine that can be so hard and emotionally draining to not just be able to wave a magic wand and say well there you go you're all better now yeah and it really is and <sighs> People don't like close relatives, close friends. When you start to learn, you're still having to educate them. Mm. So grandparents, nieces, aunties, uncles, whatever, close friends. Why don't you just eat if she feels like that? Well, I now know it's not that simple. So all the time you're dealing with that, and then you're dealing with the questions and trying to explain to close family members, and then you become annoyed at them because they ask silly questions and why, why doesn't the person just eat if they're feeling so so ill or they're not going to do what they want to do and um, you're dealing with that as well it's just trying trying to explain to people what's happening and they, they're just in disbelief because they're not living with it and they've yeah. never lived with it so that, that brings its own trouble as well just trying to explain to, to other loved ones what's happening hmm. and what do you do in those situations you know do you do you kind of say you don't want to talk about it or do you try and explain or um I think people were sometimes frightened to ask and that's fine sometimes you need space and other days you just want to blurt it all out and speak to people and you know I probably find it easier speaking to the work colleagues about it um a select few that have, you know ask how things are than parents for example because they they, they obviously love the person uh, to the bottom of their heart as well. And they're, they're struggling, they're scared, they're frightened, but and they don't understand either. So there are days and weeks where you just don't want to talk about it, but in some days you do. You just, you just blurt it out to maybe some people that are prepared to listen, you know? Yeah. And, and that's kind of, um, I'm jumping the gun a little bit, but I think it's relevant, so I kind of want to to ask it. But that was one of the questions um, that one of the listeners asked um, that kind of, as somebody... So I think the listener might be a parent or carer of somebody with an eating yeah. disorder. Um, but their question was, how can they support you? So I think it was coming more from a point of, you know, if it was one of your friends or a family member, how can they support you? And I guess 
from what you've just said there it's kind it kind of feels to me as though just kind of letting letting them be a space for you if you need it mm. yeah and I think what's been particularly difficult for us and maybe other people that have begun this journey in the last two years has been lockdown and the pandemic mm. because you haven't been able to meet people um, sure. and you feel you feel so isolated and so alone um, anyway because nobody else understands and then with the added burden, you couldn't even have people around to the house to maybe unwind or relax or things like that. So I think people wait for you to come to them because they're scared to ask and they don't really know the ins and outs. So uh, I think for us it, and my daughter, it's been so, it's been exaggerated by the pandemic, definitely. Um, I took part in the Scottish Government Eating Disorder Review earlier this year and I sort of advocated a bit more space for parents to talk and maybe the medical professionals bringing the parents together, for example, even in, during the pandemic in a Zoom session or something like that, because mm-hmm. um, any time we set aside family therapy, for example, like next week, just mum and dad will give you space to talk. Inevitably, there's another emergency mm-hmm. and we have to put that to one side. So um, really, you're just relying on in the close family on during phone calls during the pandemic. But I really do think that as part of, of treatment, there should be more emphasis on just somebody bringing the parents together. Because, mm-hmm. yeah, again, I refer to to beat, and obviously the main one, now there are spaces there where you can join and you can speak with other parents, but you have got to go and search that out. Yeah. And you're kind of lost. And you just want somebody to lead you by the hand and say, log on at seven o'clock or come to this location and there'll be other people in your situation that you can talk to. Um, yeah. And I, I haven't I haven't sought... Um, support groups or other sessions with their mums and dads just for that sheer things like I don't I've got to go and go to the bottom myself of doing it and finding it and maybe that's just me how I've approached it but I do feel if I'd been down and I'd been at family therapy for example and somebody says right seven o'clock on Tuesday we'll email you the link log on there's another four or five dads going to be there it would have been mm. something that was useful yeah it's really interesting you said that actually because um kind of before coming on this podcast I had a chat with my mum just to see like you know her insight and if she had any kind of things and topics to talk about and the one thing that she said was she wishes she was able to talk to other parents um because she I remember distinctly um we went to one of my sessions at the hospital um and there was another mum sat in the waiting room and both the daughters went in for their treatment at the same time and she got so much out of that conversation I don't even think they were specifically talking about the two daughters that had an eating disorder I think maybe they were just having a general chat but I think they they knew that each other got what was going on and it was just that space to kind of vent a little bit or kind Mm -hmm. of you know say to each other it's really not your fault or you know like you said you don't get everything right I bet Mm -hmm. it would be invaluable to have that space to say oh I did this thing the other day I know that it was a mistake but I'm beating myself about it and then for everyone in the room to say I've done that too to -hmm. know that you don't have to be perfect all the time and and nobody's asking for you to be either yeah and that's hopefully what any parents or carers listening to this will I'll hear from me that goodness me, it's so much to learn and, and, and don't and I've beat myself up and in loads of regrets and um well, you just have to keep learning. Nobody gives you a manual to deal with this at all. Nobody gives you a manual to be a parent, let alone yeah. a parent <laughs> um, with a child who's suffer, suffering from anorexia. So um you know, I've done other few bits and bobs as well as this podcast and I can't really help cure my daughter 
Um, and I don't think at this point in time, she's just too ill or doesn't want to recognise maybe some of the work that I've been doing. And, but it helps me to think I can maybe help some other parents out there and um, even just listening to me speaking make them think of, well, we're not alone. Um, and, and your circumstances are so identical to ours. And um, yeah, that's, that's how I feel I can, I can help at the minute. So that's why I um, do things like this. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it is brilliant that you're, you're sharing your story and being so open because you standing up and saying, yeah, this is going on and this is how I'm dealing with it. I think it's just it's completely invaluable for somebody else in the same situation. Um, I wanted to sort of talk about the, I guess we've already spoken a little bit about the support with the outpatient support that your daughter got. Um, mm. But you mentioned kind of coming into COVID and that inpatient support. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got so many questions to ask about your daughter being in, in person. So I'm just going to go slow and not get carried away. Um, but how did you feel when you were told that she needed to go for inpatient treatment? So that you could see it coming, you could see it coming and uh, whether it was right or wrong and other people would say as well that if you continue like this, um, you will be admitted to hospital and no, I won't, I won't. And the illness convinced, and I, I know she's not alone, that that won't happen. It's scary mum getting it's threatening. Um, but it was the lockdown that really sped it up. So I think I said before about the no breakfast, no school type thing. Well, schools off, schools were closed. So straight away, um, the person suffering with anorexia is in their room and they've got no motivation to get to school. They can't see friends. They can't see family. And really, really quickly, the, the illness just grasped that opportunity to be your only friend, if you like. And it just went downhill really, really quickly. I still wonder whether if the pandemic had happened, whether we'd be in the situation that we are, but nobody's got a crystal ball. But it certainly hastened a really quick downward spiral um, and it became inevitable. So, um, you know, there was discussions about this was going to happen and um, certain things need to be put in place and paperwork needs to be completed um, under legislation and what have you without going into too much detail. And on the day in question, we went down um, and then it was decided to us over there. And we took a suitcase, kind of knew it was coming that that would happen. But it, everyone was so, it was so fresh. It was April, so the pandemic kicked in in March mm. 2020. So we basically had to leave it at reception um, with a suitcase with a stranger breaking her heart. And for the next three weeks, you weren't allowed to see her face to face because the world was on lockdown and nobody knew how to react to it. So that was um, an incredibly tough three weeks and um, just have to turn your back um, on a 16, scared 16 year old girl who thought that the day would never come where this would happen. So um, yeah, I'm not gonna lie, that was a really traumatic day and the pandemic made it, made it even worse. Um, but after three weeks, people started to settle down a bit and they were able to put some practices and procedures in place with PPE and things like that. So things became a bit better after that and actually, as a result of speaking out about that, not in a negative way, I wasn't criticising the NHS, but um, the NHS trust where, where we're based actually realised that no, that's not good enough and we can actually accommodate parents coming on and settling people on the ward now with the appropriate PPE. So um, that kind of answers your question a wee bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that sounds... I, th- I think, you know, having to have a family member go 
into inpatient treatment would be hard enough but with the pandemic and not being able to see each other I can imagine was was even you know more difficult I guess how did you or how do you look after yourself now because I think a lot of the time when when this sort of things happens there's so much focus on the person that is struggling but mm. equally you know for you to have your child go into inpatient treatment I can imagine every time you walk away you kind of don't want to go and how do you how do you wind down or kind of look after yeah. yourself after that okay um, I will come on to that but again I want to say in relation to I think it's an important point there was a sense of relief as well mm. um, sense of relief that she was safe because she wasn't safe at home um, and should be well looked after and hopefully people would start to try and make her better and from a selfish point of view that myself and my wife and my son could sit down and have a meal uh, at whatever time we chose with no tension with no arguments no shouting so you know prof professional hospitals take this time to recharge your batteries a little bit of respite care uh, and just look after yourselves and you do feel guilty for feeling that but at the same time there's huge sense of relief because it's it's a daily daily constant battle and um, so those initial weeks or if it rumbles into months you do feel a sense of relief and you get into a new routine whether you like it or not um, because there's one person missing from the family but there's not that tension there in terms of looking after myself i just kind of one of these people that kind of gets on with it and um, obviously at the start Staying as a police officer, joined when I was 21 years old. You're used to dealing with trauma, other people's trauma, seeing people upset, death, all sorts of stuff that you become, well, I certainly feel you become a bit um, tougher to um, emotional circumstances, and that's going to be a bad thing. Um, so for me, I was able to work right through the pandemic, which was great. Obviously, a key frontline worker, um, so work occupies my time. Um, I've got two dogs, so God, a God, a godsend that you can just get outside. They need to walk; they don't understand. So, on days you're feeling rubbish and it's pouring rain, and you can't get on worse. You at least get outside with them, and you get some fresh air and what have you. Um, at one point, I got signed off for a month, um, so I never come on to it or not. And there was a second admission following a, a brief period of recovery, and, and that knocked me for six. And I just, I, I just can't face work. Just now, there's too much going on, but that was almost counterproductive um, for me. Uh, being left alone with uh, my thoughts every day, no focus. Um, so for me, continuing to work um, helps me just escape and be useful to other people. And uh, yeah, yeah. I think firstly, I want to say thank you for kind of saying about that relief. Um, yeah. I don't think it's selfish at all. I think anybody in that situation would have a kind of a breath of, yeah. we can just sort of not have the arguments or the stress around food, just kind of eat. Um, and secondly, I think what you've kind of spoken about there with work is so important. Um, I think it's something that people really struggle with, but having something for yourself and whether that is work or, you know, whatever, I think it's so important 
um you know whether it's talking to a friend or you know you and your wife having an evening together mm-hmm. I think looking back that's one thing my parents didn't do was everything revolved around me and mm. that is so difficult not to do and I'm not saying blaming yeah. them in the slightest because I think it's so difficult not to do that but why would I want to recover if the world revolved around me I, I mm. think it builds that environment of okay now I'm the focus and you know that's kind of what I wanted um but having something to do for you whether that is something that is you know restful or work so you can really delve into that I think I, I think it's more significant than people consider yeah and I, I consider myself lucky that I could do that um we both had we both had time off work um I also had some unpaid time off work because a lot of other parents have I saw an article the other day about people taking out loans and credit cards to fund private treatment because they can't get into the system and the financial impact it has on, on families. Um, and we've been part of that as well, but my wife working from home, she couldn't get out of the house environment. Mm. Um, and I, I'm just grateful that I could go to work, switch on unneeded uh, for the next 10 hours. I'm, I'm free from that because I'm so busy um, decision-making and people need me that, that was definitely a blessing for me, but I don't think I would have liked it if I'd been in a different occupation, for example, and I had to mm. stay at home or I'd been furloughed or something because too much time on your hands is, uh, for me, is, is a pretty negative thing because um, it all just tends to revolve around and your mind is just back to, to the trauma that's ongoing. Sure. And I kind of wanted to touch on that second um I think, you, did you say it was a second admission? So yeah, did she come home yeah. in between mm-hmm. that period? Yeah. I wanted to ask about that kind of time when she came home. Yeah. Was that quite a difficult adjustment to then make to having her back in the house? Uh, I think everybody, everybody's recovery or semi-recovery or little periods of positivity probably presents itself in a different way. Um, and I don't want to delve too much into her treatment and how she responds because you know she's seventeen. That's mm-hmm. that's her private life. But there was no. It was just really black and white. It just really kicked on really quickly. But I always felt on a knife edge. And um, you're elated. Mom's elated. Family are elated. I think it's all over. Um, but there were days where you could see that it wasn't, and the voice was creeping back in. And um, so again, that becomes a tense time. Tense time because you don't want to get your hopes up too much and then you can start to see little things creeping in again that you've already seen before and um, you're talking eight, nine, nine weeks at home which was great but nine weeks between being released, discharged and then being back in again so it was quite a, a quick turnaround and mm-hmm. the second time was even harder it was just a real a massive blow. How do you I don't want this to sound how it's going to sound, but it, I kind of want to ask the question. Yeah, how do you stay optimistic about the situation? Um, from my from my perspective, I probably hide that I'm not optimistic on occasions. Um, I spoke about it doing the in disorder review, and there was only a couple of dads on it. Um, but one of the dads spoke about he felt like he was the, the captain of the ship, for example. Uh, being his family, he'd lost a crew member overboard and there was nothing he could do to get that person back in and that was just his focus to do that. So 
where you know maybe a stereotypical dad or man it's just maybe keep some things inside be strong when everybody else around you is kind of crumbling a bit push down those feelings of um, what's the worst thing that could happen and just try and cheer everybody else up just wanted to ask because you you said again about kind of the role of a dad as that protector yeah how did you sort of navigate those thoughts because I think my dad was very similar and we have a phrase in my house in that if dad can't fix it nobody can um and I think it is sort of that masculine trait of Mm -hmm. dad fixes things so how Mm -hmm. have you kind of managed that thought you know I guess it takes it takes a while to to understand that you're not going to fix it. So I think you said as well, um, your dad took a back a backward seat or didn't get involved with so that. It's like in your head in the sand. I've done that so many times. It'll be fine. Don't worry, it'll be fine. Of course it'll be fine. Um, it's just a little blip. So there's, there's the denial. There's the just in your head in the sand. There's the not wanting to believe it's true. All these things happen um, at the start. Um, and it's only after a period of time. You can't just switch on and be an expert and and supporting somebody with an eating disorder, it takes time to get your head around it. And yeah, that's dads, they want to, not all dads, um, and males, I suppose, you, you hide your emotions, push them down, think about everybody else other than yourself, try to reassure people that everything will be okay when inside you're feeling that it's not going to be. So I don't think I'll be alone in those sensations, but uh, two years down the line, it's just the realisation that as a, as a dad, you're not, you're not going to be able to fix it but you just have to perform another role. And that's a role of supporting the people around about you um, and the person suffering when they let you in. And um, like I say, looking after yourself and just being, trying to be resilient. It's a word that keeps rearing its head, resilience. Um, and sometimes it's hard to, to keep that going. Yeah. I'm going to be really honest. It's important. I've, I've thought about a funeral. Um, I've thought about what I might say, I've visualised our school friends coming to it. Um, so those are quiet moments when you just think, and you, you start to learn, and we don't want to delve too much into complications that can occur, but come back to the sort of stuff we did at the start with a, a 20% mortality rate, um, anorexia and bulimia being um, the biggest killers of any mental health illness, well, that's through suicide or it's through complications particularly with um, cardiac issues and blood problems um, with electrolytes and things so and things like that go wrong yeah yeah I do I do worry greatly about it then I just try to be the strong person and do up my wife and keep positive from the son who's 14 and has witnessed um, all the stuff that he's had to witness so some of the facts are sobering some of the medical episodes are really worrying, um, but you just to rely on the fact that you should be safer in um, a hospital or unit than at home at certain points um, along the journey. Do you think, from your experience, I mean, I don't know whether you, you've got a comparison, but do you think that eating disorders are treated differently to other physical illnesses, despite the fact that there's so many physical elements like you've just said? Yeah, I've spoken about this with people and I've never been in a situation and I know people that have and God forbid and you get a diagnosis of a, of a really serious childhood illness. Okay, let, let us say cancer or something like that. But 
you get a definite diagnosis and an expert will probably lay out a treatment plan for you involving chemotherapy, surgery, and in X once time, once we've done that, these are your chances of survival or uh, you, you will survive. Uh, so that would be really, really traumatic, but you would have an end in sight. There's no cure for anorexia. Uh, nobody can give you any time scales. Uh, nobody can tell you when it's going to end. Nobody can tell you how it's going to end. Um, so it's, um, I think that's what people don't understand. It's just, uh, just left dangling. It's every day, just what's today going to bring? What's tomorrow going to bring? Um, when are we going to get some positive news? Um, in terms of the medical care, I can't fault, can't fault that, you know. There are experts there and uh, when things are going bad and blood tests twice a day and your vital signs are getting taken every hour just to make sure you're safe. So uh, I don't know if that really was, answers the question that you asked, but um, certainly, certainly well looked after. Um, and you do get a sense of relief or comfort that the people are looking after, looking after her when, when things are going bad with certain aspects mm. of physiology. But yeah. Is there support for you when things go bad? No. Mm. No. And I touched on that earlier, and maybe it's my fault for not seeking it out and being quite a private person and just just keep your chin up and, and crack on with it type thing. So uh, like the isolation, you feel so isolated as a couple, mm. as a family, really, really isolated. Um, but like, you know, the support out there, um, and we, we, become, we, we talk about Pete again being the main, UK's main charity, but I've just not felt that I can or that I want to um, go and seek out maybe a support group or something like that. So um, there's nothing, there's nothing on offer from, from the NHS, for example, in relation to that. Mm. And then that's not a criticism. Everyone's resources are um, at breaking point, finances are at breaking point. So you do feel alone, um, definitely. But we're, we're lucky that uh, we're a strong partnership and we're together and everyone's so lucky. I know there are single parents with people with, uh, in the same situation and how they, how they cope on their own is, is remarkable. Yeah. And I mean, if this is if this is too personal, but um, how do you you and your wife support each other through this? Because again, I'm gonna I'm gonna just speak anecdotally from my personal experience. But I very much had the good cop, bad cop parents, and that my mum was definitely the bad cop, and my dad sort of kind of didn't ignore the situation in the slightest. But to him, the best way to to kind of deal with this was if I just don't say anything I'm sure it will go away so to mm. me my dad was the good cop because I didn't get any kind of grief yeah yeah I didn't get anything from him I just kind of got away with it um mm. until you know one day he saw me do something and was like okay that is too far um and then that's kind of when things started kicking into gear because then they were both on the same page but I guess how do you work as a partnership? Because I can imagine sometimes it can be quite difficult if one of you thinks that the other's maybe not done the right thing. Um, yeah, you just learn. But I think you very quickly realise that things that used to cause an argument or stress between you in the past is totally irrelevant. Mm. Totally irrelevant. So I could count on one hand the last two years any minor disagreements. So. Um, 
yeah, like we've been together since we were at school, so you know, we had a good, <laughs> we had a good team. Um, and I don't think we could do it without each other. Um, mm. I, I do this sort of thing, and you know, my wife says I can never do what you're doing and speak openly about it. But she probably does ninety percent of the of the care, just the nature of the dynamic, um, particularly with me being bad cop most of the time. <laughs> um, and that, that can be hard to take, but I know one day we'll get through it, and uh, mm. we'll look back on it, and maybe, hopefully she'll be proud of some of the stuff I've done um, to raise awareness and and support in another way. But yeah, like teamwork and just the the stuff that doesn't matter just don't let it get in the way um, because if you waste your energy on the little things then you've got nothing left for the, the big problem that you're facing together so that's just the way we've been like I guess that's just the way we, the way we are maybe not everybody's the same yeah I just want to say as well that I think I mean obviously I'm not your daughter um but I can tell how much you do care and how much you mm. are supporting her and I look back at how I treated my parents and I was an absolute nightmare and a horrible person. And I think, why did you even help me because of the way I treated you? Mm-hmm. I am so grateful for, for every appointment they attended, every meal they sat with me. Um, so if, if that helps at all to... Yeah, kind of... no, I, I do. And I've spoken to to somebody else in, in, the, in the workplace who said exactly the same thing as you that had suffered. And basically thanks to their mum and dad every day for being there and, and putting up mm. with a pretty awful situations sometimes so we will I'm sure we'll look back together and um, one day regroup yeah I'm sure um the kind of last question is quite a big question um but the one that I wanted to ask I don't really think we've touched on it um but I think a lot of the time with parents or carers mm. um whether it's from external kind of individuals or yourself, there can be quite a lot of blame. Um, I guess, have you experienced that feeling of blame? And if you have, how have you kind of navigated that? Personally, no, but my wife has, um, and she'll talk to me about it. Mm. What have I, or what have we done wrong as parents? Um, We must have done something wrong. I, I don't feel that. Um, uh, that's nothing else we could have done um, I don't think degree of I don't know, is it a degree of inevitability about it or the pandemic made it worse or a way of coping with anxiety or you know there's lots of different theories out there as to why it happens so certainly when it's bad times and things are going bad and you know my wife will be upset and, and what, what could we do different, what have we done wrong but I look back and, yeah, there's things I could do better since she's been diagnosed and things I've learned. So those are the things I beat myself up about. Um, you know, like we spoke about at the start. So I've, there's things I've learned and things I think I've done wrong during the treatment phase or during the time I've been battling anorexia, but I don't look back on our upbringing or, or being a, a small child and thinking anything like that. But uh, I know mum feels like that sometimes, just helpless and what have I done wrong? Um, mm. it's up to me just to say look you're hunting anything wrong you're, you're a great mum look at everything that you're doing um, in the midst of the battle that we're facing so not not for me personally mm. yeah thank you I think I think it's it's so important just to to say that in that you know you haven't done anything wrong and I think like you said there with with your wife you're a great mum look what you're doing I think mm. if you're asking the question of 
or if you're feeling the blame of you know what what did I do wrong um where did I go wrong that that just shows a lot of empathy and I think that shows I mean I'm and I don't think it's ever anybody's fault but I think that shows the amount of care um and you're definitely not to blame like you said there's there's so many factors that influence it and it'd be fantastic if we could all rewind and go back to the exact point that triggered it but I don't personally think there is even an exact point I think it's a a kind of abundance of lots of different things that come together and unfortunately yeah. that's this is the response it gets and it's like it's like the arguments around the dinner table don't look back you just got to keep looking mm-hmm. forward so then it's like right let's regroup that's done it's mm-hmm. next meal let's refocus for the next meal so now it's just day by day oh you don't 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 waste time looking back and um yeah you can have some self-reflection and learn from it but you just got to keep moving forward um yeah. and take each day as it comes and um try and be positive and just yeah so don't look back it's, it's my advice and um, it's really difficult not to but you just have to take each day as it comes because like I said there's no route map there's no plan there's no tomorrow we're going to do this it's just wake up what is today going to bring let's try and deal with it or well, we've been here before we can do it again type of thing so yeah it's about it's about looking forward don't look back um, and just work work with the professionals and um, take it day by day yeah yeah thank you Rob um I've come to the questions from the um, from the listeners. So I've got a couple of questions for you. One of them we've already kind of gone over in terms of what for like friends and family to say to you. Um, mm. So one of the questions was, um, how can I help my daughter and prevent things from getting worse? Well, um I'm maybe not the best person to ask. I'm very critical of some of the mistakes I've made. So um, it depends what situation you're in. If you're alone and you don't have um, the support um, of the NHS at this stage or you're in the very early stages or you're worried about um, your daughter having an eating disorder, then you've got to seek help straight away. Um, If you are in the midst of battles around the tea table and food's refusal, then um, from experience, um, you need to keep calm. Um, you need to work as a team if you've got that ability uh, and you need to take on board some advice in relation to strategies which will maybe calm the situation down and um, encourage perhaps just taking on small amounts of nutrition so um, I've certainly not got, got all the answers to that and it very much depends where you are on that journey um, and I won't say don't get angry because I think it's unavoidable at times mm-hmm. Um but it's just, like we said earlier on, try and keep your patience. If you can, if you're the type of person that wants to read, then there's a lot of information out there uh, to help you with those strategies. Uh, and certainly your local uh, NHS trust, if you're lucky enough to be able to get into the system, should be able to help you with that. Yeah, I think that's great advice. And I kind of just want to add on there as well that um, that question to me when I read it was very much somebody who wants to fix and somebody mm. that wants to is is putting it on them that they're the they're the um I guess cool yeah. and like you said that's that's not possible um and I think just to highlight you know you you cannot do this alone and you cannot no. you're not going to be able to fix somebody I mm. think from personal experience all I would want is kind of a shoulder to cry on when I'm ready um, absolutely yeah 
and not not for you to have the expectation that I'm sat here thinking you're going to get me to recover because ultimately even with all the medical support in the world it has to come from the person who Mm. is struggling and that's hard and that takes time which is why I think you've highlighted patience Mm -hmm. is so important yeah and like you say you, you, you can't fix it and I think I said at the start the parent, dad, you, you think you can fix everything, and you're the protector. Um, you brought this person into the world. There's nothing that nothing I can't fix. Well, you can't fix this. And let me tell you, from experience, you cannot fix this. So, you need to reconcile that and yourself initially. And like you say, it's it's the emotional support. It's the love, unconditional love, and it's always been there. It's just trying to accept that there are going to be some really horrendous times. You're going to get called all the names under the sun. You're the most horrible person in the world because you're trying to make that person eat something. So it's really, really difficult at the start. But like you say, you can't fix it. Don't take stuff too personally because it's not your loved one speaking to you that way. And mm-hmm. just be there. Just be there when when they need you, when they want to open up. And uh, yeah, that's just some of the experiences I've had for sure. And I think that's that's why this the I I don't like the word self care. I think it's so mm. I don't know. To me, it's a bit. It's not. It doesn't sound as as important. But just taking those those moments out for yourself and making sure you're okay because it's kind of like what you were saying earlier about you know if you want to go to school, you need to have the fuel. Equally, mm. if if you're not looking after yourself and you're not re-energized there's no way you're going to be able to pick yourself up and go to that really difficult meal and have that support I think when people aren't kind of looking after themselves and making sure they're okay that's when the anger starts to come because the you just you've not got the patience um Mm. to deal with those situations yeah no you're absolutely right and yeah I agree with you what is what is self-care so for some people it's going out running or going to the gym where you can go to the gym during lockdown and you know it's just really simple for us it's just pretend to well daughter's not here at the minute but it's just get the evening meal out of the way tidy up and let's just sit down together um, and just try and unwind um, with a glass of wine uh, <laughs> or, or whatever you know um, yeah it's not oh I've done lots of running and I went to the gym to unwind and I released loads of endorphins it's just like I'm exhausted um, I've been at family therapy, I've been at work all day, you've been at work, we've had 10 phone calls, I'm exhausted, let's just sit mm-hmm. down and, and try and think about something else, dead simple, for us, for us dead mm-hmm. simple, but you know I touched on having the dogs and getting out in the fresh air and having to walk every day, uh, even when things are tough and you can't be bothered, so you know for us it's so simple, let's get out with the dogs, it's, uh, make sure we're looking after each other and just in the evening trying to switch off. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then the other question, which uh, when I read it, I did, um, what's the word? Well up? Yeah, well up a little bit. Okay. Um, what can I do to understand why my daughter wants to starve herself? Don't, I don't, I think you don't. You do not try and beat yourself up about that because the biggest experts in the world don't really understand that, do they? So it's a frightening thing. To have to deal with it's traumatic it's when you watch it happening right in front of your eyes but you, you'll never understand that and uh, the person suffering I guess won't understand that and your consultant won't understand that it's just 
a horrible, manipulative, controlling, serious, serious mental illness. You have to remember it's a serious, serious mental illness. It's not a desire to be skinny. It's not a desire to be thin, essentially. Uh, people present in different ways. But it's a serious, serious mental illness, which unfortunately it takes a long time to unfathom and help the person recover. So uh, to that person, you'll, you'll, I don't think, don't, don't beat yourself up. And I don't want to say don't waste your time, because that sounds a bit harsh. Don't, don't overthink that. Mm. Um, it's certainly not something that, that I would focus on is trying to understand why, because you, you don't. Nobody will, really. No, I guess rather than trying to understand why, maybe put that energy in trying to understand how you can help um but equally I think you know you are the parent you know your child more than anybody else in the world you know deep down what's right for them and the best way that they can be supported so I think just as difficult as it is use that instinct in the moment and what feels right for you definitely there's definitely other things that you can use your energy and desire to learn and I've spoken about I'm not the best to preach that I don't have done some research and reading obviously but um, if you want to have that sensation of trying to understand and fathom things out then uh, there's certainly material out there that can help you do that and I know you know the Maudsley method we spoke about it developing dolphins is one of the most popular ones and then there's so many examples in there of things they can say better things that can help you understand so I would certainly point somebody in that direction as to mm-hmm. if you're that kind of person that wants to really get to the bottom of it then you can use your energy uh, somewhere else to help yeah absolutely well Rob thank you so much um once again I'm just so honored that you have shared your story and so much many tips and advice and just the honesty that you have because I think that's just going to be invaluable for the people to hear so thank you very much no problem at all and uh, I hope it does help some other parents or, or sufferers just to realize they're not alone uh, and some of the mistakes you've made have all made them and you know just take each day as it comes and keep your chin up if you enjoyed listening today you won't want to miss next week's episode so be sure to subscribe Eating disorders are crippling illnesses, but with the right support, they can be recovered from. We really hope you enjoyed this episode, but if you require more support right now, please look into charities such as First Steps and Beat for support or talk to someone you trust.